Amen. Father God, thank you so much um, that there is none above you, none before you, that you hold all time in your hands, that we can worship you, we can love you, and we can adore you because you stand before all, that you are the King sovereign, that you are the Lord of all creation. We worship you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, go ahead and have a seat. I do want to go ahead and um, kind of apologize a little bit for this morning. This morning is going to be a little bit different, okay? Um, when I started seminary, one of the things they told me is that going to seminary is a lot like drinking through a fire hose. Like, you get a little bit, but like you just get overwhelmed. Well, I am fairly certain this morning that you guys are going to get a little overwhelmed with the information that I'm throwing at you, okay? But it's going to be good. It's going to be real good. I, I really, I, to be honest with you, I had a real hard time putting this sermon together, but I pray that the Lord will um, use it for his glory. Um, anyway, so if you're going to take notes, just know there's going to be a lot of scriptures to write down. There's going to be a lot of notes to be taken. I've tried to help in the slides to let you know that the, uh, some of the stuff we're going to be talking about, but this is a big topic. We're going to be talking about the Holy Trinity this morning. Uh, and so this is a topic that, that books have been written on. Um, so this is my version of this sermon is going to be like a 30,000 foot view of everything that I think is important for us to know uh, about the Trinity this morning. Several years ago, uh, we were still living in Georgia and I was taking Levi to school one day and he asked a question that I really didn't have the, the answer to. Um, he was usually asking questions about everything. And generally I had an answer for just about every question he had that would at least satisfy his curiosity. Um, but we were on the way to, to school. Most of them didn't. Okay, fine. Uh, but, but on this day, like we were on his, on the way to school and my five-year-old stumped me and he asked us, we, we were listening to the radio and he asked how the car could hear the radio station. Okay, and I said, well, the antenna picks up the signal from the radio station and, and puts it through the speakers. And then he asked a question that really stumped me, and he goes, how does an antenna work? Well, that's a pretty simple and straightforward question, um, but I don't, I didn't know. And to be honest with you, I still don't know. It's just a rod that, that I don't know how it works. So I said as much. I said, well, well, buddy, you know, I don't really know how it works, but we don't have to know exactly how something works to know that it does in fact work. We don't have to know how it works to know that it does work. Like none of us know exactly how our cell phones work, but we just know that most of the time they do work, right? Um, now, I want us to take that idea with us this morning. We, we don't have to know exactly how something works to know that it does, in fact, work. This morning's attribute of God that we're going to be looking at is the Trinity. Now, like any, many of his attributes uh, that we have looked at, this one is essential for Christianity. It is one of the things that separates Christianity from all other religions. Okay? To deny the existence of the Trinity is to deny, to deny God as he has revealed himself in his word. Now, notice what I said. I didn't say we needed to comprehend or completely understand this doctrine, but we cannot deny the Trinity. Okay? We cannot deny it. One of the things that we have seen as we've made this journey through the attributes of God is that God is bigger in scope and in scale than we can even imagine. He is greater in every conceivable way than we, his creation, are. We, can even talk, we even talked about a, a few weeks ago how we can never fully understand or comprehend everything that God 
there is to know about God. That there are mysteries that cannot be solved by our finite mind. And one of those key mysteries is the mystery of the Trinity. However, just because we can't understand everything about God doesn't mean that we can't understand anything about him. This is true for the mystery of the Trinity. Trinity simply means triunity. So for a quick and easy definition of the Trinity, I want to offer up this. I've got a slide. It says the Trinity is one God existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now there are three tenets to when it comes to the Trinity that we need to understand. There is one God, God is three coexisting eternal persons, and each person is fully God. So there is one God, God is three coexisting eternal persons, and each person is fully God. God has one nature. Nature is a thing that makes a thing what it is, and all three persons of the Trinity possess the nature of God, meaning that they have what makes God, God. However, there are three persons within this nature, and a person is defined in his relationship with other persons. And we're going to dive into this a little later, but the person of the Trinity relate to us differently. They also relate to one another differently. So we're going to look at some scriptures this morning. I'm going to power through these because there's so many of them, but take some notes, write this down, pull out your phone. I don't know, take some screenshots, whatever. Uh, if you need this document later, I can make it available for you. We will begin with God being one in nature and follow through with the persons in the Godhead. So in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four, we hear this. Listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. There was one God. Or in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, we read about eating, or eating food sacrificed to idols. Then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. Galatians 3, 20 says, now a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Now, this oneness also reveals to us that the Father is God. In Romans 1.7, it says, To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John 6.27 says, Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Now, linking this to Jesus being God, the Son being God, we see in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And to further clarify that, John says in John 1, 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1, 8 says, but, the, but to the Son, so the speaking of Jesus, your throne, God, so in Hebrews, it calls the sun God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. Colossians 2.9 offers this, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. John, 1 John 5.20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the one, uh, the true one. We are in the true one, that is, his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then we come to the Holy Spirit. 
Acts 5, 33 through 4 is the story of this uh, couple, Ananias and Sapphira. And it says this, Ananias, Peter said, or Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart and lied uh, to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep part back of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned in your heart? You have not lied to people, but God. So here, Peter is equating the Holy Spirit with God as well. And then in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, that the Spirit of God lives in you? So the evidence of Scripture is that there is one God, one essence, one being, and there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but the Scriptures reveal that the three persons of the Trinity interact with one another, making them distinct. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, this is the baptism of Jesus, and it says, When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heaven, heaven suddenly opened up for him and saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming down on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is Jesus, the Messiah, talking in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 16. Approach me and listen to this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time anything existed, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Or in Zechariah 2.11, this is Jesus also speaking. Many nations, or the son speaking, many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and become my people. I will dwell among you. And you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. So in understanding the Trinity, we need to know that each person of the Trinity is fully God, meaning that each person of the Godhead possesses each attribute of God fully and completely. This is important for us to know because we can fall into the trap and the lie that one person of the Trinity has characteristics that is different from the others or that they have characteristics that the other doesn't possess. For instance, one of the overdone tropes uh, and critiques against Christianity is that the God of the Old Testament is different than Jesus in the New Testament. Have you all heard that before? That God of the Old Testament is way different than Jesus in the New Testament. We are told that, that the God in the Old Testament is hateful and angry and wrathful, but Jesus in the New Testament is loving and kind and graceful. And what that does is it separates God into parts. That, that don't exist in the narrative of Scripture, that don't exist in the way that God has revealed himself to us. The way that God has revealed himself to us in his word is that he is completely unified in what he is doing in history. That the God of the Old Testament that, that people see as wrathful and hateful and judge and judge and jury and executioner is, is actually loving and compassionate because if he really wanted to, he could just wipe out everybody. Right, But he actually has grace and compassion. And we also see Jesus on the other side in the New Testament, though he is loving and compassionate and kind, we also see in Revelation that he is going to come to judge the living and the dead. Right, That he's going to pour out his wrath on those who don't accept him. So the, the God of the Bible is cohesive and coherent and completely God, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, Jesus was there. The Spirit was there, and the Father was there. There aren't parts of God. There is only one God working in unity. And each person in the Trinity holds the same attributes eternally. They are love and justice, grace and wrath. All the attributes of God that we've talked about up until this point are found in the fullness of who God is. One in essence, three in persons, fully sharing in the attributes. Now, I don't know if you can tell or not, but this is really hard for us to wrap our minds around. Right? That, that this is, can be really difficult, and it's okay. You can process it. 
But sometimes what we do as humans is we want to make sense of everything, right? We want everything to make sense. So as humans, we like to think the neat little packages. So we've tried to make the Trinity a little more understanding or easier to understand for us. And the way that we have done this is that we've attached Trinitarian language to analogies. So we try to make the, the Trinity is like whatever. And I'm going to mention some of them this morning, but I want you to know that they all miss the mark when talking about God. And as we talk about them, they generally lead towards ancient heresies. And a heresy, if you don't know, is a belief that runs contrary to what we as followers of Jesus should believe. Now, I've got slides for this too, so you can follow along. One of those most popular analogy that I've heard about the Trinity is that the Trinity is like water. What it is is there's three forms of water, right? There's liquid, ice, and steam. And each of these states of water represent God. God can be liquid, he can be ice, he can be steam, but they're all water. They're different forms of water. The problem with this analogy, there is a heresy attached to this analogy, is that it promotes what's called modalism. Okay? Modalism is um, the fact that God reveals himself in different modes or different persons. There's different aspects of God. He can't be, water can't be liquid, ice, and steam at the same time. It can only present in one mode at a time. So modalism argues that the three persons of the Trinity are actually just modes or aspects of God. And so there's not three distinct persons, but God is only one person who manifests himself in different ways. This is heretical. This is not a teaching from Scripture. For each person in the Godhead is fully God at all times. So there aren't just masks that God puts on, but he is fully God at all times. The next analogy that's popularized by um, St. Patrick is the analogy of the three-leaf clover, right? That each leaf represents a person in the Trinity. This is um, what we would call partialism. That's the problem with this one, the heresy of partialism. Uh, Each leaf is a part of the clover, but not the whole clover, right? This would mean that God is made up of three parts rather than one being. In partialism, each person of the Trinity is only one-third of God rather than fully God. Again, another heresy. Another popular one is that um, God is like an egg, Okay, that there is one egg and in one egg you have the white and you have the yolk and you have the shell and it makes up one full egg. This analogy denies the unity of the Godhead. It's a it's a a heresy called tritheism, essentially meaning that there is not one God, but three gods that share similar but not the same nature. There's also the analogy that God is like the sun. The S-U-N, not the S-O-N, the sun. This goes that the father is like the star of the sun. And the sun is like the rays of light. And the Holy Spirit is like the heat that comes off the sun. The problem with this one, though, is it argues that Jesus, the sun, and the spirit are creations of God. That they don't exist co-eternally. Right? That they are just byproducts of God. They are not the same nature, and this is an ancient heresy known as Arianism. So to boil it down real quickly, it is unwise and even dangerous to use analogies to try to compare and comprehend the Trinity. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who has ever used one of these analogies is a heretic. I am saying that we should be careful about the language that we use when we talk about God. 
Trying to fit our own understanding into, of God into the box is a dangerous and unwise venture. He is infinitely more complex than we can ever imagine. And like I said earlier, it is good for us to rest in the mystery of who God is. So then if we can't use analogies to explain God, how do we go about it? Well, nothing's going to be as clean and crisp as an analogy to exp- express who God is. But the great thing is, is that we do, this has been hashed out over the history, and uh, we have what is called the Athanasian Creed. Now, this is where things are going to get a little bit different, okay? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a little snippet of the Athanasius Creed together, okay? So I want you all to read this with me. So if you're asleep, wake up, and let's read this together, okay? That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence for the person of God is distinct person. The person of the son is another and that of the Holy spirit still another, but the divinity of the father, son and Holy spirit is one, their glory, glory equal and their majesty co-eternal. What quality the father has the son has and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. And the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet they are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. We can stop there. So, so there's more, and this is just a little bit of it, okay? But to, to understand the Trinity, it takes a lot of explanation so that we don't fall into the traps of these heresies here, okay? So that's all well and good, right? And I'm sure that you still all have lots of questions about the Trinity. I'm glad. Let's provoke some thought. Let's provoke some, some intellectual understanding of who God is. Let's, let's be spurred on about that. But I want you to know that I can't answer all your questions. And in fact, nobody can. But knowing that growing in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ honors him when we come to this point where we go, I can't understand it, but I want to dig deeper. I want to know more. That's where I want to provoke you to today. Now, I want to shift gears for just a few minutes and talk about the action of God in the world as the Trinity. We have seen that God is one being in three persons. And I described that a person is based on their interaction with other persons, right? So how does this impact our understanding of the Trinity? Let's not forget that each person of the Trinity is, has equal attributes and divinity, but that doesn't mean that they don't have separate roles. This is what is called the economy of the Trinity. And this word economy refers to the ordering of activities meaning that each person in the Trinity have different functions and primary activities. This is most plainly seen in the acts of creation and the act of salvation. So let's see the Trinity in creation. When it comes to creation, each member of the Trinity has a distinct role. Think about it this way. The father spoke creation into existence in, in, in the Genesis account, right? Genesis 1-3 says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And there's a pattern repeated in Genesis The father said, and it was done. God, the father is the architect of creation, planning and decreeing what the universe would look like, how it would operate, laying out the laws of nature, the structure and the beauty and the creativity in creation. 
So when the universe, in humans' terms, was conceptualized by God, the Father, he knew how it would work. He knew that the sun would rise in the east and set in the west. He knew how reproductive organs and reproduction would work. He knew how the trees would breathe in the carbon dioxide that, that humans breathed out, and that by breathing out the, car, the oxygen that the humans could breathe in, this was a cycle that God knew and designed. He knew how he wanted the rain cycle to work. He knew all the functions of the world around us. He was the architect, the designer of creation. Meanwhile, God the Son, the eternal word of God, carried out the creative decrees of the Father set forth. So in John 1.3 we see this, that all things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. Or in Colossians 1.16, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. And for him, and even in Hebrews chapter one, verse two, it says this in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him the heir of all things and made the universe through him. It was through the word of the father, the son of God, that the earth and everything came to be. All things were made by the son and they are for the son. The purpose of all creation is the, to point us to the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. Not only did the Father and the Son have a role in creation, so did the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1-2 says this, Now the earth was formless and without void, or formless and empty. Darkness covered the, suffer the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. We see the Spirit of God in creation. The Holy Spirit manifesting and demonstrating the, the divine presence of God in creation. That he wasn't just a remote architect or a divine builder, but he was intimately involved in the creation of the world. Bringing out of nothing something. Bringing order and beauty into the, the creation that he created. For a long time as a young man, I uh, struggled with a verse in the opening chapters of Genesis. I don't know if you've ever struggled with it. If you read through it and you read Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27, where it says this, then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea and the bird of the sky and the livestock and the whole earth and the creatures that crawl in the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And you may be asking, Josh, what was the problem that you had with this verse? The, it was in the opening words, let us make man in our own image. Who is this us? What, what is this us that, that God is speaking of here? Now, there's some differing answers to this that out there, but I'm convinced that this is an expression of the triune God in creation. This is the fullness of God looking down at his creation and consulting within his being in all three persons, wanting to make a person in his own image. It's a beautiful picture of God's work in his creation. It's the unity of God on display for all of us to see. As wonderful as the act of creation is, though, we can really also see the Trinity in the work of redemption of mankind. Much like in creation, God the Father was the planner and architect of redemption. He is the one who sent the Son into the world. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 says this, For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the time came to completion, God sent his Son, 
born of a woman under the law. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says this, He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. See, from the very beginning of time, God had a plan to fix the broken relationship that we had with him, the broken relationship between God and man. God knew that we were the problem, and he knew that the problem could never be the solution to the problem, so he needed to provide a solution. So he orchestrated our redemption through the sending of his son, Now, Jesus, the son comes to earth, sent by the father to live the perfect life that we could not live the perfect life of obedience. And through his obedience to the father, he accomplishes redemption. The obedience to the father included offering up his life as a sacrifice. John chapter six, verse 38 says this, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or even John 4.34, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me to finish his work, Jesus told them. John 6.40 says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees a son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, God the Father didn't die for our sins, neither did God the Holy Spirit, but the Son laid down his life for us, and it was God the Father that honored Jesus' obedience honored his sacrifice by raising Jesus from the dead and affirming that redemption had been accomplished. It is through the death of Jesus that God's plan of redemption was now enacted. Now to those who would believe in him will have redemption. Those who believe in Jesus in the life, death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension will now have life with God. And as the down payment for your belief, you receive the Holy Spirit living in you. Not only does God begin the plan and he accomplished the plan, but he also comes and dwells with those who are part of the plan, who have been redeemed. The role of the Holy Spirit is a threefold role. First, he is the one that convicts us of our sins and gives us new life. That's what uh, Jesus says in John chapter three, verse five through eight, when he says, Jesus answered them, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who was born in the spirit. In order to be born in the spirit, to be redeemed by God, you must be born of the spirit. This is a supernatural act that can only happen through conviction of our sins and seeing the need for forgiveness from God. Second, he helps us in the sanctification process. The Holy Spirit embody or lives within us and helps us to become more like Jesus. Romans 8:13 because if you live according to the flesh you are going to die, but if you but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Romans 15:16 says to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as the priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose in the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And first Peter chapter one, verse two says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father through the sanctifying work of the spirit, be obedient to this, uh, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
So the Holy Spirit, when we believe in Jesus, when we acknowledge Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he comes to live with us, and what he does is he sanctifies us. And what does sanctification mean? Sanctification simply means that he forms us into the image of God. He chips away all the rough edges. He buffs out all the stuff that doesn't honor Jesus, and he, he shapes us and molds us into the person or into the image of Jesus. And this can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit empowers those saved by grace to do acts of service that they have been called to. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come to you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The power to do the work of God is found in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 1-7 says, A manifestation of the Spirit given to each person for the common good. To one is given the message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, the faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between the Spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same spirit is active in all of these, distributing to each person as he wills. The Holy Spirit, when we come to faith in Jesus, gives us, gives us spiritual gifts and empowers us to use those for the good of God, God's people, and to glorify him. The Holy Spirit also brings to completion all the work that God had planned. He, he makes us into his image. You can see in creation and redemption the triune Godhead working in complete harmony to accomplish his will. Though they may differ in relationship to creation, they are equal in power and in majesty and in attributes. The question is, why does this all matter? Why do we need to even know or study the Trinity? One of the reasons we need to study the Trinity is that it helps us to gather a grander view of who God is. We tend to like shrink to shrink God down to our own size to make God look like us. That's why we use analogies that don't work. That's why we think we can manipulate God to do our wills. But the reality is, and when we dive deeper into the Trinity, it forces us to see God for who he is. It forces us to recognize how grand in scope God is compared to us. It forces us to hold tightly to the truth that we will never understand God fully but that we can trust him completely. The Trinity shows us the importance of both unity and diversity. This can be seen in two primary places. There are two distinct, uh, the first being marriage. Marriage is a good place to mimic the Trinity, that there are a husband and a wife coming together in marriage, right? That they are two distinct people, but they come together for one marriage. Right? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, it says this, For this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In a healthy and biblical marriage, the couple become one flesh, working toward the goal of glorifying God and fulfilling the purpose that he has for them, imitating the unity of the Trinity. Not only is unity important in the home, but it is also important in the church. As those who follow Jesus, we are members of a body, but we are one body. There's great diversity in the church, and we are called to unity in that diversity. Our gifts and our callings may differ, but we need to be unified around the one that we serve. Unity and diversity display God's glory. 
We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which I read earlier, and in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. You can look that one up later. I'm not going to read it. Romans chapter 12. In the kingdom of God, we never lose our identity, but we are called for one purpose, to serve one another and ultimately glorify God. Just like the Trinity, they are unified, but they have distinct purposes. And we, when we imitate them, work better together when we work in unity with one another. The unity and the diversity in the Trinity sets the model and the goal for the church and for marriage. The Trinity is the example that we should follow when it comes to living out the calling that we have been given. And I know, again, that you guys are probably a little overwhelmed with all this information. But I want to close with this quote from an old preacher named Charles Spurgeon. And he says this, Nothing will so enlarge the intellect and magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the whole subject of the Trinity. Studying who God is, recognizing him for who he is, is going to open up a whole lot of our devotion and our intellect. It'll magnify our soul. It'll bring glory to God. God wants us to know him. And though we will never know him completely, we can always know him better. We can always love him deeper. And that's part of the the purpose of this, is to help us to see God for who he is so that we can love him more fully. So we can know him more deeply. And this morning, usually we do uh, the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month, but we were at the gym last Sunday, so we didn't do that. But we are going to do it this morning. So if I could have um, Chuck and Lawrence come down to serve the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, The Lord's Supper is a, a beautiful time for us to worship the Lord together, to see him and to know him and to love him and to think about what Jesus did and to look forward to the time that we can be reunited with him. So as we gather together to to worship in this way this morning, I pray that you would reflect on the body being broken of Jesus and the blood being spilled so that we could have salvation and redemption in him. I'm going to pray real quick and then the gentleman will pass it out. Father God, thank you so much for your love and your kindness. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, that as we take this Lord's Supper this morning, that we would um, recognize how, how beautiful the story of redemption is how unified you were in the story of redemption, how your plans and your purposes came together so that we could be, um, we could live in, in light of your glory and grace all the days of our lives. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.